You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. There were some key primaries this week that were bellwethers for Republicans, for Democrats, and for Trump. Let's dive in with Washington Post national political reporter Annie Linsky. Annie, welcome back to First Look. Hi, glad to be here. All right, so what was the big headline from Tuesday's primaries? Um, I think sort of January 6th, um, you know, election deniers um, won statewide in, in two important um, states, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. So, you know, to me, that was the big takeaway that the Republican electorate has not tired of this, um, you know, conspiracy theory pushed by Trump and his um, and his supporters. So, you know, in North Carolina, you had um, Ted Budd, a congressman who voted to um, uh, to sort of discount the um, 2020 election. Uh, and he was while he was voting in the chamber, there was a person, Doug Mastriano, who was marching in Washington that day at a Stop the Steel rally, and he won um, the Republican nomination to be governor of Pennsylvania, um, which will set up a really important showdown in November. Um, so to me, that was the biggest takeaway. But I think we also learned a lot about um, the, the um, importance of Trump's endorsement and the limits of Trump's endorsement. Mm. Okay, so great. That anticipates my next question. So what did the primaries mean for Donald Trump and his um, power within and hold over the Republican Party? I, you know, I think what it showed is that Trump's endorsement is obviously good for these candidates. Um, I, guess I shouldn't say obviously. His, his endorsement is good, but it's not determinative. Um, if you look at North Carolina, Ted Budd, um, you know, who was vying in a very crowded field to be the Republican nominee for Senate in North Carolina. Um, the, the thing that set him apart from this field, which included former Governor Pat McCrory, so it was a competitive field, the one thing that set him apart is he had Trump's endorsement. Um, and you could see that in some of the um, data that the Club for Growth shared on their website. It showed that um, Voters who knew that Ted Budd had Trump support, he was winning those voters by 30 points. But voters yeah. who did not know that Budd was the chosen candidate by Trump, um, he was losing those voters by 32 points. So just the Trump endorsement in North Carolina was important. Also, you had Republicans aligned there. The Club for Growth, which has been feuding with Trump in other places, was also backing um, Ted Budd. So, you know, there's an alignment. You look at somewhere like um, Pennsylvania, and it's just a lot messier. Um, the Republican kind of apparatus was sprawled all over the place. You had um, big backers um, for other candidates, particularly um, uh, uh, David McCormick. And, and that the, the Pennsylvania Senate primary is still undecided. It's like within a thousand votes right now. And there, Trump's candidate is, you know, Trump's endorsement certainly lifted his candidate, but we don't know what the results are yet. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it was a mixed result for Trump himself. Trumpism, though, did quite well. And, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, if um, Trump's designated candidate, Amena Oz, um, if he loses, it's going to be because there is another Trumpier candidate from the right, Kathy Barnett, who took a lot of those Trump votes away mm -hmm. from Oz. 
Well, let's let's talk more about Pennsylvania and the the gubernatorial primary race. Um, you mentioned you talked a little bit about it. This is Doug Mastriano, who um, not a, gosh, he he was here in Washington um, during the insurrection. Um, he uh, tried to overturn President Biden's 2020 victory. He got um, Donald Trump's endorsement, and he won far and away. Um, the, yeah. the Republican nomination. So I guess the question is, is he likely to prevail, become the next governor of Pennsylvania against the Democratic uh, challenger who is uh, Josh Shapiro, who is the sitting attorney general of the, uh, of the Commonwealth? Um, well, I think that, you know, it's, it, we've got a lot of time between these, you know, until November. I, I think that we have, one should remember, uh, Mastriano is, the candidate that Josh Shapiro, the Democrat, wanted to run against. Um, Josh Shapiro put half a million dollars into advertising for Doug Mastriano. He he was trying to lift up this um, candidate because he felt like he, he'd be somebody um, he could beat. That is a very dangerous game to play. <laughs> Mastriano, yep. um, you know, Mastriano, it is unclear that he would, you know, um, sign a certification in 2024 for the electoral votes in Pennsylvania. He, to have Pennsylvania potentially governed by somebody who was a leading voice for overturning the election in, in Pennsylvania in 2020. I mean, he, you know, he was on the phone with Trump's lawyers. He was on the phone with Trump. Um, you know, in, in his rallies, in his sort of the final days, um, he brought in some of Trump's l lawyers who, who, who appeared virtually at, at rallies for him. I mean, this is somebody who is not just following the conspiracy. He's a leader of the conspiracy. Um, right. So there's a there's going to be a real contrast between him and Shapiro. But I think, you know, it's a very cynical game of Democrats to, you know, at, at one point sort of fret about democracy and then on the other hand, be the, the largest funder of a candidate that very clearly has outside of the norm views about democracy. Right. So I think John Perro right. deserves to be um, called out for that. Right, right, called out for it. And the key thing you mentioned, you said, is that he's playing a very dangerous game um, because not only a governor would a governor Mastriano um, be able to mess with the certification, the governor of Pennsylvania is the one who appoints the secretary of state who oversees elections. That person is not elected as they are in, say, Georgia. Um, and that person's beholden to, to the electorate. So yeah, it is a very dangerous game. Annie, in the time that we have left, I want to talk about something that you have reported. And that is, there are all these people in the White House around the president who have tested positive for COVID, and yet the president continues to test negative for COVID. Why is that? And what does that mean about the how much time he actually spends with people? Well, it's, it's even more than that. It's, you know, Biden has tested negative for COVID and obviously nobody wants the commander in chief to test positive. It would be terrible. Right. Um, but Biden also hasn't even had a close contact with anybody who has COVID, right? Like, so a close contact by, um, by the definition of the CDC is spending 15 minutes in the presence of somebody who, you know, within two days then tests positive 
for COVID. And the White House is saying, well, this has never happened. They have said that they would report any close contact that Biden had. And seemingly, he is not spending 15 minutes um, with a whole slew of people who later get COVID, including his secretary of state, um, you, you know, his press secretary who got it twice, his more recent press secretary who got it once, um, but not just his aides, also his his sister got COVID, Biden was not, was not a close contact, um, his, his daughter just got COVID, and Biden, again, not a close contact. So you do kind of wonder, I mean, who is this president spending time with? Um, and it, it does just is this a sort of constant reminder of how lonely it would be to be president, particularly right now. And he is in this very protective bubble because, you know, his aides, nobody wants him. He's a 79 year old president. And for him, getting COVID would be a really big deal. So they are doing a good job protecting him. It's just the cost in terms of personal isolation seems to be, you know, rather extraordinary. Uh, within the White House, though, and yeah, I mean, you you describe a, a very lonely picture for anybody. But, you know, when that person is the president of the United States, you really kind of got a feel for the for the guy. Um, but, you know, the president right now is over. He's in Asia. He is in Korea. Do you think that the 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 ability of the president to now actually leave the confines, not only of the White House, and of Washington, but the country to get out and meet with leaders and meet with uh, with other human beings is something that is leveling for the president's isolation. P potentially, I mean, he has you know done some foreign trips before. Um, you know, most uh, sort of the most fun event, as far as I could tell, was his in um, when he was at the G20. There was a giant gala in Rome that was beautiful, and um, the president was supposed to be there for 20 minutes. And I was sitting in the van outside, and he was definitely there for more than two hours. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yeah, around, he is doing that, but. You know, just the fact that, you know, this definition of close contact is very specific and it's, it's 15 minutes mm -hmm. with somebody, even if you're both masked. So it is, you know, surprising that not even that he hasn't had it, but he hasn't been in close contact with anybody who's had it. Right. The, the, the close contact thing. It's like we're all on on timers whenever whenever we're with somebody. Annie Linsky, as always, we are out of time just as we are, you know, we get going with our conversation. Annie Linsky, Washington Post national political reporter. Thank you, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. All right, we're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate editor and columnist Eugene Robinson and columnist Josh Rogan. Welcome to you both. Welcome back to First Look. Good morning. Happy Friday. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be here. <laughs> All right. So we, I was just talking to Annie about some of the primary races uh, that happened on Tuesday. We talked about Pennsylvania and a little bit about North Carolina, but let's keep talking about North Carolina where Congressman Ted Budd thanked Donald Trump for his endorsement in his um, in his victory uh, speech to be the Republican nominee for Senate. Uh, have a listen. So when President Trump endorsed me last June, he said this. He said, Ted, I'm endorsing you because you never wavered on America First policies. That America First agenda, it led to historic job growth, <coughs> wage growth, and prosperity for all Americans. 
So, Gene, will that message carry Congressman Budd from the House to the Senate this fall against his Democratic uh, challenger, Judge uh, Sherry Beasley? Well, it could. I mean, it's North Carolina. Um, it, it basically, a, uh, basically a red state. I mean, North Carolina's been changing, and North Carolina surprises us sometimes. But I would say Bud is favored um, right now to take take that seat, and um, and I think that that um, you know he 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 credits President Trump for lifting him to to his primary victory, uh, but I think it's more important in North Carolina that he's a Republican, um, full stop. Uh, and that, that gives him an advantage going in and we'll see how, how Beasley does and whether she's able uh, to eat into that, uh, that advantage. Yeah. Let me, I, I, um, let me stick with you for one second, because as you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna hold that question. I'm gonna hold the question I was gonna ask you and go to Josh. Uh, Josh, in terms of Donald Trump, how large was his footprint on Tuesday's voting? Right. Well, I think it, it's pretty clear that it was uh, less uh, uh, significant than uh, he would have wanted, and than people might have expected. I mean, just look at the map. You've got Dr. Oz. You've uh, 100% name recognition, unlimited money, and the Donald Trump endorsement, and he didn't even get more than you know 60% of the MAGA movement, much less beat a hedge fund manager with ties to China. Look at you know the Trump endorsement of some non-MAGA Republicans like Morgan Ortegas in Tennessee Fifth. The Republican Party drummed her out of the uh, uh, ballot, and then look at Madison Carthorn in North Carolina, who's got to start a dark MAGA because it, the Trump endorsement didn't get him above his issues. So it really was more about the candidates. Look at David Perdue. There's a, just a lot of examples. And the examples where Trump put points on the board, he totally violated what he just said to Ted. It wasn't about MAGA at all because he dumped Lou Bardella in Pennsylvania, and be, who was the, as MAGA as you could get because he saw that he was going to lose. So, you know, this strategy of Trump trying to gamble and come up with numbers not based on any calculation of policy, much less the welfare of the constituents of his movement or the people that are in these districts, uh, it's a numbers game. But when he wins, it's more luck than anything else. You know, I was going to ask if you think then, since there doesn't seem to be any science or rhyme or reason to his endorsement, is it just Donald Trump trying to figure out, okay, this is the guy who's going to win and I want to be with the winner? Right. Well, it's it's also the MAGA people trying to figure out where Donald Trump's going to end up, because it's hard to have a cult of personality when you don't know if what the cult leader is going to do next. So you don't know how to get to where he's going to land. So it's confusion both ways. And the fact that Trump is so capricious and changes his mind all the time, that's what sows all the confusion. And of course, the MAGA, the MAGA movement, as Kathy Barnett in Pennsylvania said, doesn't belong to Trump. And he created a monster and then he lost control of the monster, which is like the story of every book and movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Gene, let's turn our attention to, to Pennsylvania, um, where the lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, he won the Democratic nomination for Senate from his hospital bed. And a lot, of be, a lot is yeah. being made of the fact that you know, he has this everyman persona. That being said, will that be enough uh, for him to flip that Senate seat, given the strong headwinds for Democrats all over the country this cycle? Well, um, 
It could be, actually. I mean, Fetterman uh, demonstrated uh, that he is a good candidate for Pennsylvania. I mean, this sort of, you know, working class um, uh, persona or it's just the way he is. Um, uh, he's he's not uh, polished. He doesn't measure his words uh, very carefully. Uh, he wears, you know, Carhartt outfits. He is. And basketball um, shorts, Dean. Basketball yeah, shorts. Yeah, he, he, wears, he wears basketball shorts. He is, you know, a regular guy um, uh, in a, in a, in what, he, uh, you know, appealing to a regular guy state. And he, and, and he did, uh, he, I mean, he ran away with the primary. Um, I think he has a real slot, real shot at, uh, uh, at taking uh, that Senate seat. Mm-hmm. And and Josh, and sort of a a, a follow up to the the question I asked you. Um, actually, no, it's a follow up to what I just asked Gene, and and that is this: if you're John Fetterman running for running to flip a Senate seat, do you want President Biden coming into the state to campaign with you? I mean, especially given um, the president's really low job approval ratings. Right. Well, you know, Jonathan, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and I'm here to tell you that uh, Pennsylvanians love Joe Biden. Okay, they consider him a hometown guy, and that's always been the case, and it'll always be the case. So don't extrapolate anything from his national poll numbers. He's big in Pennsylvania. You want him on that stage. You need him on that stage. And you know, the other thing I know, uh, having spent the first 18 years of my life in Pennsylvania, is that it's basically a center-left, center-right. Uh, market, okay, and so if Fetterman runs in the middle and you know doesn't make any big mistakes, and we all wish for his uh, his continued uh, recovery, mm-hmm. uh, I think he has a really good shot of taking this thing because you know Pennsylvania will move back and forth between sort of the forty yard lines, but it never goes too far to one side or the other. This is interesting. I mean, you know, um, folks who are watching, you don't know this, but Josh is kind of a he's a tough guy. So the idea that he says that Fetterman <laughs> actually has has a shot and actually sounds kind of optimistic. That that is a big deal. All right, um, Gene. All politics is local, um, but will abortion be a galvanizing issue for Democrats in the midterms? Uh, well, if it if it is, it will be um, it'll be the first time. I mean, it'll be the first time that Democrats have able have been able. Um, to mobilize around this issue the way um, uh, Republicans and uh, the uh, anti-abortion movement have done uh, for years and years, uh, you know, is the with the impending demise of Roe v. Wade, is there a Democratic Party single-issue voter there uh, that's going to really be motivated uh, in a way that that voter was not motivated before. Uh, and I, I, we don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, historically, um, you wouldn't put a lot of money on, uh, on abortion becoming that, um, you know, and, and, and a, a wave of, of Roe v. Wade, um, carrying Democrats to some Big victory, but it's so difficult these days to predict um, uh, to predict politics because the old rules don't seem to apply anymore. Uh, so it's a possibility we're going to have to see this develop over the next month, and we're going to have to read the actual decision when it comes out too. Right, right. So then, Josh, 
I'm going to give you ask kind of the same question. All politics is local, but is the economy the issue driving the midterms over all, any other issue we could possibly discuss, including um, the official Supreme Court ruling on whatever it's going to do on Roe v. Wade? Listen, I, I think the economy is a huge issue, but it's just the latest in a cascade of crises that have put a lot of pressure on a lot of Americans and people around the world. The pandemic, the energy crisis, the food crisis, the baby formula crisis. Uh, people are frazzled after three years of uh, what has been a very, very strange and dystopian time in all of our lives. And they look for change. And, you know, President Biden was elected largely on a pitch of a return to normalcy. And although most of these things are really out of his control, if we're being honest, a return to normalcy is far from what we've got. So I think, uh, uh, you know, voters in that situation will always try to turn to an alternative. And so I think that that bodes very poorly uh, in November for Democrats up and down the ticket. Uh, let's turn our attention to Ukraine. Yesterday, the Senate passed another $40 billion um, military and humanitarian aid package for Ukraine. Um, Eugene, I'll start with you. The significance of mm -hmm. this additional aid package? Well, it could be hugely significant on the battlefield. Um, you know, $40 billion uh, if that brings the U.S. Um, um, contribution to uh, to to the Ukraine war effort to something like fifty three billion dollars. By contrast, the entire um, military budget of of Russia is something like sixty six billion dollars. So not that far off. This is a, this is a huge um, package. Um, I think the the there's a consensus on the Hill, although there is um, you know there are some. Um, Rand Paul and others um, who disagree, but there is a consensus that this is money well spent now um, uh, to help the Ukrainians um, uh, fight off the Russians, that it's better to spend um, $40 billion now than to have to spend so much more to some, uh, at some later point um, with a, you know, a, a, a more unfavorable geopolitical solution, uh, situation in Europe. So, um, so yeah, it's amazing. This, you know, bipartisan uh, agreement on $40 billion. Who to thunk right. it? Right. Who to thunk it? Now, that being said, Josh, um, like I said, it's another $40 billion on top of other multi-billion dollar aid packages for, for Ukraine. Do, are there any signs that, that, that the American people might be getting a little weary of all those billions uh, going to Ukraine, going to another country when there are pressing issues here at home? Well, certainly, Jonathan. I mean, first of all, we should be clear that billions of in, within that total aren't going to Ukraine at all. They're going to mitigate the global food crisis, the global energy crisis and all the other global crises that are second and third degree effects. It's an acknowledgement uh, by the Biden administration, and I wouldn't say a consensus, but at least a majority in both parties, uh, that this Russia-Ukraine war is not really just about Russia-Ukraine, and we're seeing the effects mm -hmm. everywhere. And so that's one thing. And you know what really shocked me actually about the vote was not that it passed, was that 57 Republicans in, 11, in the House and 11 Republicans in the Senate voted against it, you know, on this idea that, oh, well, we have to choose between helping Americans and helping people uh, abroad, which is a false choice, which frankly used to be confined to the Rand Paul restraint crowd, but now includes people like Senator Bill Haggerty, who was the U.S. ambassador to Japan and, 
you know, in my opinion, knows better, you know, if you catch my drift. And so why are they doing this? Because heritage action and the money in the Republican Party is now moving towards that more restraint, isolationist foreign policy, Tucker Carlson view. And the politicians follow the money. And sure, you know, the majority of Republicans made a very simple point, which is $40 billion now is a lot cheaper than World War III if Russia wins. It seems pretty simple. And, you know, it's a shame that a lot more Republicans aren't willing to explain that to their constituents. Right. It, it, exactly. All right. We've got less than five minutes left, and I've got two questions I have to get in. Uh, Gene, yesterday the president welcomed the president of Finland and the prime minister of mm-hmm. Sweden uh, to the White House to champion their their membership application to NATO. And yet Turkey, uh, President Erdogan is like, uh, no, 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 I, I'm not for this. Yeah. Is there anything, what will it take to get over Turkey's objections uh, to allow for those for Finland and Sweden to officially become members of NATO. Well, the administration and and frankly the other major members of of, Na- of NATO seem to think it will take um, um, bribing Erdogan in some way. Um, uh, you know, Sweden and Finland, I think, are not prepared to do what he wants to do, which uh, wants them to do, which would be um, to um, potentially uh, hand over to Turkey um, uh, dissidents uh, and uh, who, who, Lord knows what would happen to them uh, in, if they if Erdogan got his hands on them. Um, uh, and he calls them terrorists, and so you know this. This is his ostensible reason for um, saying I'm going to block this. Um, the the administration and and the you know and the Brits and the French seem to think um, that Erdogan can be um, can be brought around, uh, perhaps with um, uh, with other favors that they can do for him, short of. Of uh, of asking you know to put the lives of these dissidents in, in jeopardy by sending them home. Right. And, and and Josh, final question to you: As we are having this conversation right now, the president of the United States is over in Asia. He is in in Korea, um, basically sending a message to the region that the United States do, um, is you know values the relationships. Um, you have a column out where you're specifically writing about China and the incredible uh, effort, lobbying effort, all sorts of things to get the United States to remove the tariffs on China that were instituted by Donald Trump. And you say that that's a bad idea, even if it means um, lowering prices here in the United States. Real quickly, why? Right. Well, you know, the Treasury Department, Wall Street and the Chinese government have teamed up to try to convince Biden to drop Trump's China tariffs under the false claim that it would lower inflation and help consumers. Uh, But what I point out is that it actually wouldn't have any measurable effect on the economy at all, much less inflation. And that what it would do is give the Chinese government a huge unearned concession that it has been bargaining for. And that if Biden does that now, that would come at, of course, the worst possible time as he's in Asia trying to prove to our Asian allies that his administration is tough on China. Uh, But this is this is not. Uh, um, uh, a new argument. This is how Wall Street has always viewed the tariffs, and they're just using the latest economic crisis to try to trick Biden into doing what they always wanted him to do. But, you know, the labor unions, on the other hand, are warning the president that if he uh, loosens his uh, grip on uh, tough 
economic measures vis-a-vis -vis China, that comes at the expense of American workers and he'll pay that price in November with Democrats as well. And I think they're right. And I think the national security officials are right, which is that, you know, this is not the time to give China a concession. This is the time to protect American businesses and to realize that China's economy is going south because its dictator is going crazy. And that means we have to uh, disentangle ourselves from China and not get deeper into that risky uh, dictatorship mess. I think in that fight between Wall Street and and the labor unions, I think I know which side the the pre President Biden um, would choose. Josh I'm Rogan, so Eugene sure. Robinson, we are. I'm not so sure either. We'll see. We are out of we are out of time. Uh, thanks for coming on First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.